Uh, I set out this week, we're going to be talking about the Rabshakeh. I gave you a little bit of a preview last week. Rabshakeh, that's not the guy's name. We're not given his name, that's his title. The Rabshakeh translates to roughly like field commander in the Assyrian army. We've been studying our way through some of the great D-listers of the Bible. Bible characters that you maybe are aware of, you maybe know about them, but you may not. These are the people whose names are usually kind of hard to pronounce, and the details of their lives are kind of fuzzy. We don't really know exactly all the details, Um, but the Rabshakeh is who we're going to be spending time with this morning. Uh, The year is 701 B.C., and the tiny kingdom of Judah, under the leadership of King Hezekiah, is facing an existential threat. The Bible contains three parallel accounts of when King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah. We find those accounts in 2 Chronicles 32, 2 Kings 18 through 19, and Isaiah 36 through 37. Sennacherib is a well-documented historical figure. This is one of those places where our Bibles, our history books, the archaeological record, it all lines up in perfect sync for sure. (coughs) Excuse me. The kingdom of Israel to the north has already fallen to the Assyrians, as have other neighboring kingdoms. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, takes what measures he can to prepare his kingdom for a fight. He raises and equips troops. He fortifies city. He spends especially, a special amount of energy and attention fortifying Jerusalem. He takes extraordinary steps to ensure that Jerusalem would have a secure water supply in the event of a prolonged siege. That's a whole, we could do a whole sermon on Hezekiah's tunnel some other time. However, from the start, Judah and Assyria are a complete mismatch. I mean, such a complete, we we would call it a David and Goliath, but honestly, if we know all the facts, David and Goliath should be called a Judah and Assyria. <laughs> That's how, this is a really big mismatch that we are looking at. The war machine of Assyria is well-oiled. It is battle-hardened, and its fighting forces are far more numerous. And not only that, but Assyria had that certain indefinable edge of just utter ruthlessness. Uh, if you spend any time looking into the, the history of the Assyrian Empire, they are well known. They are famous for their, uh, we would call them war crimes, their atrocities. They had a will to inflict pain on the people that they were conquering that it's just hard to imagine that human beings with a conscience could actually do. And they, so they were a horrifying, frightening, very warlike empire that was more than just flexing its muscles in the neighborhood. It was actively executing its will on neighboring kingdoms. City after city falls to Sennacherib in Judah until the countryside is completely overrun. And according to Sennacherib's own records, discovered independently by archaeologists many hundreds of years later, Hezekiah was shut up in Jerusalem, quote, like a bird in a cage. That's how he described it. And that's where we find God's people in Isaiah 36. They're shut up in Jerusalem, trapped like birds in a cage. 
the whole width and breadth of the kingdom of Judah was effectively reduced to 135 free and independent acres on the mount at Jerusalem. It was a nervous and uncertain time. Into the picture now comes a man who is called the Rabshakeh, this field commander in the Assyrian army. He has been charged by King Sennacherib of Assyria, who remains camped over 30 miles away. He's mopping up what's left of the Judean city of Lachish. He's tasked this Rabshakeh with going to Jerusalem and begin the work of overthrowing the last remaining the last standing Judean city. And as I mentioned in last week's worship service, this Rabshakeh is a grade A trash talker. Just one of the finest specimens of trash talking in all of Scripture. And there are others. As I mentioned last week, David and Goliath and the plain of Elah, they are throwing zingers back and forth at each other. Uh, this is not only the business of people that are not God's people, but we also find uh, the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel doing arguably, uh, you know, he's right up there with Rabshakeh as far as trash talking. But here it is. I, I did some looking into the psychology of trash talking this week. I, I looked it up. I said I used that term last week, and I even mentioned some good people in the Bible did it. I don't want people walking away thinking like it's a good thing to be a trash talker. Uh, but here's the thing, trash talking is not a phenomenon unique to our present age, nor is it a phenomenon unique to professional sports, um, but psychologists have actually written a lot on the psychology of trash talking. Um, it's interesting, and they're kind of all over the map. There is no consensus view on whether it's good or bad, effective or ineffective. It's just something that human beings do. <laughs> they do. But I do know this, like when I was a little boy and I had a paper route, I had a guy uh, tell me one time he had multiple dogs in his yard, and it was the scariest thing to try and take the paper to, to put on his, I basically took my life in my hand every time I went to deliver this man's newspaper. And so I got really good at throwing the newspaper at his yard. I would stand out in the street and hurl it, <laughs> and if it didn't get on the porch, I just left. I didn't care. But one time he said, you can come into the yard. And I said, I'm scared of your dogs. He said, well, there's only one dog you have to be scared of. And I was like, well, that's not exactly comforting. <laughs> but he said, the ones that bark, you don't have to worry about them. They just bark. But it's that one. <laughs> and he pointed at this other dog, and he said, that one doesn't bark at all. It just comes and bites you. So I do think that sometimes trash talk is meant as a cover for something else. It's bluster. Uh, but one thing we can say about the Assyrians and about this Rabshakeh is he's not writing checks his body can't cash, right? These guys have backed up this talk everywhere. The Assyrians are simply speaking what they see as the facts, you should not stand up to us. You should not fight us. This is not going to go well for you. And I think he really believes this. He really does. And so one thing I think we need to see and understand in this, and this is what I wrote in the midweek email this week, is that really the story in Isaiah 36 and 37 is a showdown 
between people of faith. The Rabshakeh is a man of faith. He really does have a, a perfect ocean of faith. I think when he's saying this, he's not just a yappy chihuahua, hoping you won't notice how small he is. He is showing up and he is preaching the gospel according to Rabshakeh. What I'm saying is true. And then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is also a man of faith. And what I tried to do was do this in one sermon, couldn't do it, we're going to do it in two. So this week we're going to spend time in Isaiah 36, talking about the Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh speaks this morning. Rabshakeh is going to speak. And then next week, Hezekiah is going to speak. And I promise you, if you have to miss one of those two sermons, come next week. (laughs) That'll be the one you want to sit in on, for sure. This Rabshakeh, he appears outside the gates of Jerusalem at the head of an armed force, and he begins hurling insults, threats, and ominous dark predictions into the ears of all those people locked up like birds in a cage. Desperate people. And the Assyrians have this resume that backs up the words Rabshakeh is hurling at them. But if I was a filmmaker trying to make a movie out of this scene, I would be frustrated, I think, by the complete lack of action. All of the elements are present for an action film except for the action. You have all these soldiers, you have the soaring battlements, you've got kings and field commanders, and all they're doing is talking. This film would be a dialogue-driven film. And you would keep wanting to make it into an action film, but it just would refuse to be so. It's a war of words that we witness in these chapters. And the battle is going to be fought away from view in the hearts and minds of God's people and also in the unseen realm. And that's where the battle's being fought in our culture today. Now, I I really think this. I I think you can uh, overplay this hand But as I kept reading the words of the Rabshakeh, his words are echoing in our culture today. They are being hurled in many ways at the church today. And there is a battle going on in the hearts and minds of God's people in the church and in the unseen realm. Here, it says this at the beginning of chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder." Now, Jerusalem was, of course, the most principal city, the royal seat, the political, economic, and spiritual center of Judah. The very fact that this Rabshakeh comes to Jerusalem and not King Sennacherib himself is is a statement all its own. This is the beginning of the psychological warfare. You can't say to the Rabshakeh, let me speak to your manager. (laughs) because this is who Sennacherib sends out to talk to Hezekiah. By sending an emissary, 
rather than coming in person, Sennacherib is making the clear statement that Jerusalem is a small matter, a loose end, and its fall is an inevitability that with which he can't really be bothered right now. And since Sennacherib had not come himself, but he sent an envoy, Hezekiah decided to respond in a similar fashion. It wouldn't be proper for a king, such as Hezekiah, to meet with someone of lesser station. <coughs> Excuse me. The Rabshakeh demands that Hezekiah talk to him, thereby intimating that Sennacherib is so great a king that his servants are the equals of lesser kings, like Hezekiah. Hezekiah, however, being sensitive to this, sends out his own court officials. Now, Lachish, where Sennacherib is, was the second most important city of Judah at that time. It was a fortified city about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. The capture of Lachish was so important to Sennacherib that he memorialized it in a huge and magnificent relief on the walls of his palace at Nineveh. Today, you can go see this relief at the British Museum, or if that's beyond your budget, you can also see it online. That's where I saw it this week. The relief portrays the Assyrian king sitting on a throne in a military camp outside the city. Prisoners of war are marched by on foot, and all the spoil from the city is being displayed on ox wagons. There are very graphic depictions of unspeakable cruelty that resulted after the city was taken, which I won't describe now because we're in mixed company. The Assyrians really made a horrific example of the cities that resisted. And this caused many cities to subsequently surrender without a fight. The inscription on the relief reads, Sennacherib, king of all, king of Assyria, sitting on his Nimdu throne while the spoil of Lachish passes before him. And interestingly, in the relief, although Sennacherib boasts about conquering all the fortified cities of Jerusalem, he makes no mention of Jerusalem, of Judah, he makes no mention of Jerusalem only saying that Hezekiah was locked up in there like a bird in a cage. Nor does he mention why he aborted his takeover of Judah. Uh, the Bible supplies us with that information, and that's next week. But listen to what the Rabshakeh says to the defenders of Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 5, he asks a series of questions. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? I think this, these very words have been spoken by the prince of this world against the church in many different ways down through the years. Church, on what do you rest this trust of yours? What is the basis of your hope that you live the way you do? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Fellow Christian, what do you have to speak back to the enemy except words? What did Satan what, get from Jesus when he tempted him? Jesus responded with words, not with demonstrations of power. And in many ways, what we have, what we bring, is the Word of God. That's the basis of our hope. We have the say-so of the Almighty. 
We have a check that has not yet been cashed in our presence. We believe that with God, his promises are the same as performance. But right now, they remain promises, words. And Satan wants to come to the church, to our hearts, and say, let's talk about the basis of your trust. Really, are words going to cut it? Have you seen what I've done? The Rabshakeh is kind of a proxy figure for the enemy. In verses 6 through 8, he theorizes about what and whom Judah has put their trust in. First, he talks about Egypt. He says, Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. By the way, Isaiah, the prophet in Judah at this time, is also very critical of Israel's trust in Egypt. Uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And the Rabshakeh is right. Uh, but he's speaking about this from a haughty, arrogant, prideful place. The Assyrians and the Egyptians are two, the two big dogs on the block. And they're kind of constantly flexing against each other. And he is saying, you have rebelled against me because you've thrown in your lot with Egypt. You think Egypt is going to be able to help you? Then, and he's right, in a sense. Uh, Egypt is not who God's people should be relying on, looking to. So he points that out. Second, though, he points out God. He says this, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now here we have to point out that the Rabshakeh is very confused. He may speak Hebrew perfectly well, but he speaks their religion in a very broken way. He does not understand the spiritual dynamics of what Hezekiah has been doing. Hezekiah tore down the altars on the high places, which were idols to false gods. Uh, but the Rabshakeh has interpreted this as Hezekiah destroying or desecrating sites of worship and saying in a very heavy-handed way, you have to come worship where I tell you you can worship. This is not a right understanding. And anybody behind the walls would have understood that this is a man who does not understand our religious practices, the religious sensibilities of our people. Uh, he's speaking with a, from a place that would make, a sen make sense to the Assyrian mind, but not to those who are listening. Third, Judah, he, what he mocks is Judah's own fighting ability. And, and this is just pure trash talk. Verse 8. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. <laughs> this is just trash talk. This is all this is. You want me to point out how ridiculously unprepared you are for war against us? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Can you do it? How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? You don't have the means or the wherewithal to fight me. 
In fact, if I gave you the means, you wouldn't even have the people to use them. And they're kind of going, that might be a good point. <laughs> we, we really couldn't put horsemen on those horses if you did. That's an interesting point, Rabshakeh. In verse 10, the Rabshakeh introduced confusion by claiming that the Lord had told him to come up against the land to destroy it. He says this, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. <coughs> Excuse me, you got a tickle there. This is an interesting verse. Uh, we wonder if Sennacherib was aware of Isaiah's statement that Assyria was the rod which God would use to punish Judah. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah says this earlier in the book in Isaiah 10. And if this is true, then Sennacherib hasn't read enough of Isaiah, for God clearly says that he will punish Assyria after he is done using her for that purpose. Two verses later, he says that. One commentary I read noted that the Assyrians had a track record of telling their enemies that their gods were angry with them, that the gods had abandoned them, that they were there as divine justice for some sins that they had committed. All of this is designed to do a few things. Every word that the Rabshakeh has spoken before the defenders of Jerusalem is meant to deceive them, to discourage them, to demoralize them, and to sow doubt. And basically what he's done is he said, you have no friends. Or if you do have friends, they're not going to help you. You don't have the means yourself. You are not good enough. And let me tell you about your God. He's angry at you, and he sent me. He came and told me to come do this. <laughs> this is his message. So go back to his original question. On what does your trust rest? Egypt? No. Your own inner resources? That's ridiculous. Your God? He's on my side. This is what he's saying. In verse 11, Hezekiah's ambassadors requested that the conversation be continued in the Aramaic language rather than in Hebrew. And in so doing, they are trying to avoid a panic on the part of the population in Jerusalem. Basically, they're like, hey, 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 shh. <laughs> they're, they're listening. Let's speak in Aramaic. It's impressive that this Rabshakeh speaks the language of the Jews, I think. And, and they really are trying to avoid a panic within the city. Uh, the people are listening. They're up on the ramparts. They're listening to what the Rabshakeh says. They're hearing every word. Aramaic was the language, the kind of the lingua franca of commerce and diplomacy in that part of the world at that time. And so only the educated leaders in Israel would understand Aramaic, which, uh, again, was, was used for these kind of higher-end diplomacy kind of language interactions. But the Rabshakeh refuses to speak Aramaic. He wants to do everything possible to incite the people to rebel and take his side. So speaking clearly and in Hebrew and with a large audience of Judeans listening in from the ramparts above, the Rabshakeh lays out a horrible picture of what a protracted siege would mean for them and your families. 
He says, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and not to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? By contrast, he then paints a rosier picture of their future if they would only surrender the city into the tender mercies of King Sennacherib. He says, and here, who is he talking to? Do not listen to Hezekiah, for this, uh, thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. You see, he's no longer talking to the emissaries of the king. He is addressing directly the men on the wall. Forget you guys. Make your peace with me. He's not talking to Hezekiah anymore. He's talking to the people. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until, you come and, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. <coughs> Excuse me. So the message is this. You can make peace and eat figs, or make war and eat, well, you know. <laughs> you can surrender and live, or you can resist and die. You can be a slave of Sennacherib, or you can die. However, up to this point, we might look at what Rabshakeh has been saying, and sure, it is trash talk. It's arrogant, high-handed, and full of bluster. But for the most part, he has been aiming his trash talk at King Hezekiah, or there would be protectors, or even the fighting men of Judah. He's been criticizing human beings, and his one mention of the God of Judah is really limited to a statement that he is actually acting in service to that God and that God had permitted their destruction because Hezekiah had destroyed their high places where he wrongly assumes the people had previously worshipped that God. However, in verses 15 and 18 through 20, the Rabshakeh takes things just too far. He makes a critical mistake. Up to this point, honestly, uh, with, except for his uh, error concerning theology and his understanding of what God is doing, although I think even there he's right, I think it's possible that he does understand that God is going to use the Assyrians to discipline Israel. This is something that Isaiah has said, maybe he knows but his understanding of these things is deeply flawed. But up to this point, he's been kind of right about some things. Egypt is not something they can lean on for support. They do absolutely do not have the same capacity as the, as the Assyrians do. He's been pointing out things that are largely manifestly obvious and true, just in sort of an arrogant, trash-talky kind of way. But here he says some things that just a bridge too far. He says, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Thank you. He 
Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the land, out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now, this is a big mistake. He's right in his overall assessment of the Judeans. I think he's right in his overall assessment of Egypt. But he is wrong in saying your God is like all those other gods that we overthrew and tossed into the fire. By lumping in Yahweh, the great Jehovah, with all these impotent idols, and by denying that that God could deliver Jerusalem, the Rabshakeh was basically daring the Lion of Judah to prove himself. The reference to the inability of the gods of Samaria to deliver the Israelites would have been especially effective in scaring the people since Israel's God was also Judah's God. But note what the Rabshakeh says. He, when he mentions Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, he says their gods couldn't save them, which speaks, I think, to why the judgment of the Assyrians was dropped on Israel to begin with. They forsook the worship of the one true God and instead had become worshipers of gods. To the credit of the people of Jerusalem, they, obey, they obeyed their king's command to hold their peace. The king, uh, king Hezekiah had given a command that nobody was to answer the Rabshakeh. They respond to all of his words with silence. And that's impressive enough, I suppose. But it's also impressive to me that at least insofar as the Bible records, there was no inner quarreling as a result of Rabshakeh's words. They didn't march on Hezekiah's palace and demand his resignation. No murmuring, no calling for the powers that be to change their course. All of this silence is very impressive to me. I think sometimes when you squeeze a person or a church, what oozes out is very telling. And we see something here in the self-mastery of God's people in this moment. Horrified at the blasphemies of the Rabshakeh, Hezekiah's three ambassadors, they ripped their robes, returned to the royal palace to report all that had been said. Now, I've already pointed this out, but it is really worth noting that the Rabshakeh was targeting his words at the people. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you. He, is he has come 
ostensibly to speak to Hezekiah, but he is really interested in persuading the people over to his side. And really, it's uh, the enemy is talking to each one of us individually today. Do you think Satan is at all interested in sending a message to your God? I think he knows where God stands. I think he does. I think the Rabshakeh generally knew who Hezekiah was and what he was planning to do. He shows up not to try and persuade Rabshakeh, Hezekiah. He shows up with all these ominous, angry, dark, violent words for the benefit of the people who are listening on the wall. And that's you and me. That's you and me. When Satan speaks in the word today, in the world today, do you think for one minute he is trying to persuade God of anything? No. He is saying, come out to me. Make your peace with me. You can have peace and eat figs in this world, or you can make war and eat your own excrement. That's your future if you follow your king. There's no doubt about it. That is who our enemy is, and that is what he is saying to you, to your children, in so many words. Well, next week, we are going to study Hezekiah's response. The people do not speak to the Rabshakeh. They do not give him an answer. But they are not silent. They do talk. They talk to their God. And next week, we're going to study Hezekiah's masterful prayer that he prayed. It is a beautiful thing. It is a prayer that we as God's people, living in the days that we do, should dissect and imitate in our own prayers. It's a really a beautiful prayer. You can read it in Isaiah 37. I encourage you this week to spend some time in it in preparation for when we gather back together next week. Just a couple uh, points of application as I close here, though. One is, um, how rare is this self-mastery and silence that we see in God's people in a Facebook comment thread today? This is where the rabshakas are. (laughs) This This is where they're hurling their stuff at us. I'm not saying it is always, as a blanket policy, the will of God that we don't answer. Not true. Did not Elijah speak? Of course he did. Did not David speak when Goliath said the things he did? I am not saying there is a one-size-fits-all policy prescription, but who among us, when we read these words that they were silent when the Rabshakeh spoke, don't think to ourselves, that's right and noble and good. It is. We don't always have to answer a fool according to their folly. That's what the Bible calls us to do. We should not always cast pearls before swine. And that's what this would have been. This is not a genuine meeting of the minds. This is a rude swap. This would just devolve into a a nasty name-calling bit beneath us. It's not right. It's not persuasive. It's not good. And I think very often Christians need to hit the pause button before we dive into some comment threads. 
I really do believe this. Another thing I want to point out, and because next week we're going to be talking about prayer. Uh, If I ever write a book, and I doubt I ever will, but if I ever did, it would be on the topic of difficult versus impossible. Fellow Christian, is what we're called to something that's difficult or impossible? This is a very important question. I've talked about this on other Sunday mornings before. But anytime we come to the topic of prayer, I feel the need or the prompting to put this back in front of us. And and we, we know the difference because things that are impossible can't be made harder or easier, correct? Like if I said, lift a Mack truck up over your head, that's impossible. You can't do that. And so it can't be made easier. You can't be like, well, can I listen to Eye of the Tiger while I do it? <laughs> that might be a song that pumps you up and gets the juices flowing, but you can't lift that Mack truck even with Eye of the Tiger playing in the background. What if I drank a Red Bull first? No. I know. Can I lift the truck with an empty gas tank? Knock yourself out. <laughs> You see, you can't make that easier or harder. It's impossible. Isn't that true? This is really the measure of something that's impossible. And so one of the things that bothers me is that I often think to myself, I'm bothered by myself quite a bit. Sometimes I'm driving and I'll hear something in the news and I'll go, oh, things are getting harder for the church today. What did I just reveal about how I view things? I think that this mission is possible in human strength if I have the right circumstances, right? So, fellow Christian, I ask you again, (laughs) is what we've been called to do difficult or is it impossible? Because you see, a difficult thing, the answer is clear we got to spend more hours, spend more money. we got to throw more people at it. We've got we've to really rise to this challenge. Or is it impossible? Now listen, I can't lift a Mack truck up over my head. But there are heavy-duty cranes that are equal to the task. I have to call on somebody who has the ability to do what I can't. Hezekiah knows that the Assyrian army is not difficult. It is impossible. And he very wisely abandons any idea of trying to get it done in his power. We're going to see this next week. This is critically important for us as God's people. Tell me, when has it ever been easier to make a dead person alive? Never. (laughs) When, When will it ever be harder? Never. It will only ever always be impossible according to the limits of human strength. You and I cannot do what we have been called to do. 
And if we think that the business of the church can be done without prayer, it is the same as thinking we can do it without God. That is absolutely 100% the same statement we are making. And so next week, and I'm glad this is where Pastor Andrew landed this morning on Missions Emphasis, we are going to spend some time dissecting the prayer of Hezekiah. No answer is given to the Rabshakeh. No answer is given to the thief on the cross who railed against Jesus. You don't answer a fool according to his folly. But what you do is you turn to God and you talk to him. That's what Hezekiah does, and that's what we need to be doing as God's people as well. So I really hope you can come back and take in part two of our study of the Rabshakeh. Uh, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, I just feel this morning like we have just set things up. And Father, I pray that you would preserve the time next week. I pray that you'd bring us all back here together to, next week to dive into chapter 37, in which Isaiah, the prophet, calls out to you, in which King Hezekiah himself goes up to the temple, sits down in front of you, God, and prays. Father, we know who you are. Father, we know who we are talking to. God, you are the God who spoke this world into being out of nothing. You are the God who is holy, holy, holy. You are the God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. You are the God who knows each one of our days under the sun before there was ever even one of them. You are the God who sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. You're the Lion of Judah. You're the God who's mighty to save. And God, we trust you. Father, we ask your forgiveness when our, for those times when our prayerlessness has revealed a heart that has, sway, has been swerved into such error that we think we can do in our own power that which is impossible. God, we thank you for calling us, your church, your people, to the impossible, that your glory might be made visible in the answer to those prayers. God, what this world needs to see is you, not a really busy church. God, we know that what this world needs to see is your power, not exceptionally good people. Father, we humbly stand before you as very needy, needy people. And Father, like the Israelites in Judah, the Judeans, God, that which is surrounding us is the product of our own sinful rebellion against your throne. But God, we come to you as a God of grace and mercy, confessing our sins, knowing rightly who you are. And God, we trust that you will not be mocked. God, we pray for your glory and for your namesake that you would move in a powerful way here in our own communities, in our own lives. Father, we look forward to coming back together next week and seeing what you have to say through chapter 37. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.